The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Saturday, February 25th, 2023. Good. Status and situation, Rios. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 34th Digest of this second volume, covering Monday, February 20th through Friday, February 24th, 2023. Meanwhile, Monday, Part 12, taking a look at Dick Giordano's Meanwhile column that began in the early 80s in DC Comics. Dick Giordano was the managing editor of DC at the time and would write these monthly columns to give you, the readers, a little behind-the-scenes at DC Comics at this time when they were really pushing some new initiatives. And it's a great look into DC history during the 80s, which is the era of comics that I consider my golden age, and uh, it's really been a lot of fun learning about some projects that didn't make it, um, hearing about some projects that obviously did, seeing how things that Dick talked about, uh, you know, maybe how they changed in during the process. So, Uh, Yeah, it's just been a great little insight into some comic history. So this month, or this uh, segment, we're going to take a look at the Meanwhile column in comics cover dated of November of 1983, which means they shipped in August of 1983, which means he probably wrote this column sometime within the first half of 1983. This particular column can be found in All-Star Squadron 27 and Annual Number 2, Amethyst Number 7, Arak 27, Arion 13, DC Comics Presents 63, Detective Comics uh, 532, Flash 327, The Green Lantern Green Arrow Baxter Issue Number 2, those reprints that they were doing, Jonah Hex 78, Justice League of America 220, Legion of Superheroes 305, New Adventures of Superboy 47, Sergeant Rock 382, Thriller number one, Vigilante number one, Wonder Woman 309, and probably a bunch more. This column starts off with Dick writing, I have a vision, a vision of comics being all that they can be. These are the opening lines to a speech that he gave during conventions in 1982, throughout 1982, and he wanted to use this column to drive home the idea that the comic industry's need for new talent would prevent his vision from ever becoming a reality unless a program was initiated by the major publishers to encourage the entry of new talent into the field. He felt like his speech didn't clearly delineate his vision or its origins or its development, so that's what this article is about. It begins with Dick's origin story of being introduced to and starting to read comics as an only child who was often sick, and his first comic was an issue of Famous Funnies. And then he talks about how he was hooked immediately, becoming an avid reader And he started to write and draw his own comics as a kid, which is a familiar story for probably a lot of us out there. That is something I talked about 
on when I did a guest spot for just another fanboy for Stephen Orr, and I talked about the uh, superhero universe that I had created. So you can probably go look on the website, the Daily Rios website, hit the podcast appearance tag, and that episode should pop up. So then Dick talks about uh, when he was in elementary school, he learned that a classmate of his also collected comics, but from a different store. So that colleague, that, that classmate, was able to get comics that Dick hadn't seen at his own newsstand store, and that's where trading began between the two. He knew early on that he would do comics as a career. He went to School of Industrial Art to train as an artist. They had courses in cartooning and other commercial arts, as well as academic subjects. And he believes this is the whole reason why he started to get up every morning at 4 a.m., which is something he mentioned in a previous column when he gave readers a little insight into like a day of a day of his work life. And he mentioned how he, he gets up at four o'clock and he does his thing, which is, wow, that's discipline, right? Sometime in the 50s, he would discover EC comics and these comics hit home for him. And he really believed that they were all about true creativity and collaboration and they were fun to read and he felt like they demanded that you care about them. And that's how he segues into his vision for DC. It's the same thing he wants DC to be in those early 80s or in the near future and beyond, right? And he says he wants DC to have people working together who care about their material, each other, their reader, and comics in general. Creators who work toward a common goal for love of the work and a desire to entertain and please an audience as well as themselves. Creators who feel that they can make such a total commitment and not feel it's just a job to produce a line of comics that make a special statement their statement. A line of comics Dick can read to recapture the excitement of a time not too long ago when comics were all they could be. So with all that spelled out in the column, I thought of three different things. Number one, it's really going to be hard for me to be objective about, you know, whether or not Dick succeeded and whether DC succeeded in the early 80s and the middle 80s, because as I mentioned, the 80s are my golden age, you know, from 1982 to about 1988, that span of comics at DC and I was reading Marvel too, but mostly, you know, I was really loving the DC universe. Um, it's going to be hard for me to say whether his vision really worked out or didn't because that era of DC Comics taught me to be a comic book fan and comic book reader. And I do believe that DC really was um, just firing on all cylinders. You know, it was sort of like a slow roll in the early 80s. And then once they hit crisis and... Um, post-crisis is when they really started to take over and dominate a lot of what was being put on the shelves and some really interesting titles. Um, it was the place to be, right? You know, it just it just was an exciting time to be a DC Comics fan. So I, I do believe that at least that part of his vision is is true, you know. And then there were other moments, right? Like, okay, so I said 82 to 88, Really, like 1984, 1985 to like 1987, maybe a little bit into 19... That's a great time to read DC Comics. 
then you could also say from like 1998 through to like 2005 2006 with um it's like a roller coaster that constantly keeps going up you know there's some really good titles and then you know things sort of level out and then some other really good things happen in the early 2000s and then all the way up through infinite crisis and 52 like that's all just a really great upward roller coaster ride um another sort of big one was dc rebirth will dawn of dc be that i don't know you know i don't know just yet but and i'm sure there's other smaller errors that i could pick certainly the birth of vertigo the birth of milestone but those are just a few so so that part of his vision where i feel that creators were trying to create things that could be universal and evergreen and could um, really fire the imagination of the readers, but of the creators themselves. Like, yes, I do believe that has happened multiple times, not only at DC, Marvel as well, and other publishers. My second thought is, uh, I, I think Dick has already talked about spearheading. Yes, there was a previous Meanwhile column where he talked about some editors coming in to talk to him about New Talent Showcase, which was a series in the 80s, that DC did, and then they did some other one-shots just within like the last six, seven years as well, whereas a title that new creators could come in and write stories. I don't necessarily think they were using actual DC properties. Um, I could be mistaken because I haven't read all of that series, but it was a way to showcase new readers, uh, uh, new creators, and put them out there for fans. I think... DC has done this quite often um, without ever really sort of giving notice to it. So, of course, the new talent showcase title, that's going to say, okay, these are new creators. But when you think of Secret Files, when you think of the holiday specials that DC does, or any kind of like 80-page giant, 100-page giant, anniversary uh, collaborations or compilations... Um, anytime they do the color anthologies like uh, Superman blue and red is it I think and Wonder Woman black and gold I mean all of that all of those kind of titles and anthology one shots those are basically tryouts for new creators so in terms of comics that is something that DC has done pretty well then my third point going to that notion of what he talked about that publishers should have a program to, you know, encourage new talent. Um, I like what he had to say when he said, talent is a good start, but you do need training. And I feel like that is very true. And I want to say someone like, I think it's Julian Lytle once said, you know, you can be an artist and you can sit in your room and you can draw all day. But if you're not looking, <laughs> I think it's I think what he says is you need to sometimes you need to go out and look at a tree. Right. Like you, you do need to look at the world around you. You just can't learn how to draw comics or create comics as a writer or artist by reading comics. You got to do other things. You got to read other things. You got to watch other things. You got to attend uh, seminars and hear authors speak and, and hear artists speak. That's probably the biggest criticism about some of the newer artists that came up during the 80s and into the image era and the 90s era is that a lot of them were just learning their comic book craft by through other comics. And that's not 
really always the best way. So um, this idea of fostering new talent, um, that there should be some kind of training. And I think it I think it goes all up and down the creative line. You know, I've been saying on the DC All-Stars podcast and a few times here, I think there's a real disconnect with what editors do now versus what they used to do then, where editors at the time were sometimes art directors as well. You know, when you have Ed Hannigan and Ernie Cologne and um, Joe Orlando and Carmine Infantino, I mean, these are artists, you know, they are artists as editors and they have an idea of like what to look for on the page and how, how to help things and think of Joe Kubert starting his school. So um, I think people who understand skill and craft is not only about the writer, not only about the artist, you know, writers should know something about art and artists should know something about writing and uh, colorists and letter artists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, inkers. So um, I, I do firmly believe that training is important and this notion of publishers should foster programs, uh, you know, just in recent years DC published or DC put out that whole milestone initiative and some of those creators are starting to write for DC comics um yeah I think it's something that uh it's a conversation that goes on a lot and there's a lot of you know barriers to entry I totally understand that and that's not really ultimately what I'm trying to go for in this conversation just sticking with Dick Giordano said about he believes in those early 80s that's that that that's something that should be done and i feel like tight um publishing lines like epic vertigo and I, I know i'm really just sticking with the big two um those help but um certainly within the 80s i felt like a lot of the new voices probably were coming out from dc more than marvel it or I should say they were probably given a little bit bigger of a platform and they were allowed to do bigger things um, because DC was playing with a lot of formats and they were playing with a lot of genres and I think they really owned the 80s for that. So yes, I do believe Dick Giordano's vision uh, was quite successful. As a column itself, this was probably one of the columns as a kid that I, I just sort of skimmed over because it was like, oh, you know, they're not he's not really talking about previews or what's coming down the line, you know. So I was I was it was probably too adult for me, but now as I read it and look back on it, I love it. This is a great this is a great entry within the my uh, meanwhile columns. So a different meanwhile column this time around, something a little more lofty. Uh, but I did appreciate it as I was reading it, and it uh, helped to, uh, you know, kind of uh, see where, where, what Dick was thinking about at this moment of time and how it relates to DC Comics, especially in the 80s. So I will pick up uh, another Meanwhile segment, you know, somewhere down the road when the mood strikes, and we will continue our little journey through DC Comics in the early 80s. TV Tuesday, going back to Walking Dead, Season 11, this time taking a look at Episodes 10 through 14, 
uh, I covered the first nine episodes a few digests back. So this is the last season. It is already wrapped up. So I'm making my way through because I refuse to watch Last of Us, uh, you know, another dystopian, quote unquote, zombie uh, franchise. Um, I, I can't stop. I can't start watching it until I'm finished with The Walking Dead. Um, so this run of episodes shows how the Commonwealth has impacted some of the other communities, right? So the last time uh, we talked, we jumped six months and Daryl was working with the Commonwealth uh, stormtroopers, for lack of a better word, and they were arriving at a hilltop where Maggie was at. And now what these episodes are showing is the time in between. So we're getting the buildup, right? A lot of the Alexandria community has moved over to, to the Commonwealth and they've integrated themselves, found jobs, found work. Um, we're starting to see, uh, you know, the, the cracks of Commonwealth. And apparently there's like, you know, 50,000 people that are part of this uh, community, which I think is in Ohio. Um, so you have people like Daryl and Rosita. They are part of the the you know stormtroopers that's run by Mercer. Um, Ezekiel is working with animals because he worked at a zoo in 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 the prior life, and um, you don't really see much of people like Princess and and Yumiko. You know they have jobs or they're part of a a different class sect, especially Yumiko. Uh, Connie is doing her reporter thing. So it's like, you know, they're all spread out doing their various jobs. There's a lot of themes about class and social structure and, uh, you know, what really is this? Every community that we've come across has something in it that is that is bad and that is going sour. So you have the governor, Pamela Milton, but then you have her right-hand man um, who is Lance, but he has motivations and he's even compiled this kind of like secret cabal that, you know, he, he has something that he's going to do. He's, he's not a good guy, basically. Um, Carol is doing her thing that she usually does where she really investigates every new community that they've, that they come up across. And she has a relationship with Lance, Lance Hornsby. Um, Ezekiel, a lot of his stories are just about his health. There's a mystery about, Eugene and that woman that he thought he was talking to, Stephanie, and it turns out it's not Stephanie. There really is a, a different Stephanie. Mercer, the head of the stormtroopers, he's starting to see what the what this community really is. And it's interesting when they do a tour, when Pamela and, and the Commonwealth do a tour of Alexandria and Hilltop and Oceanside, Mercer sees that these other communities that had way less are actually structured uh, a little more fairly and everybody's treated a little bit more like an equal as opposed to what's going on in the Commonwealth. Um, Pamela has a son, uh, Sebastian. He's an asshole. I can't wait until he dies. And it's a huge cast and we are just over halfway through. And I'm like, okay, we got to get to it, right? Like there are characters and character journeys that need to wrap up 
When is the big conflict going to drop? Again, I'm up to episode 14. There's only 24 episodes. Some of those later episodes may be, they they have to be movie length because I don't know how they're going to wrap all this up. People have to die. I want people to die, some people, because they deserve it. (laughs) Um, And then I guess the other thing is we get the return of Negan, of course, and the return of Leah, um, you know, at the end, by the end of these episodes. And all of that just, you know, builds drama, builds tension. Um, You know, obviously things are going to come to a head. So here are a few notes per episode. Episode 10, even though episode 9 ended with six months later, this is where we go back and see how everybody integrates into the Commonwealth. It's Halloween. People are playing their various roles. It opens up with a haunted maze that Daryl and Judith have to go through. And it's this weird theme of like, you know, reality has become fantasy, even though the reality is still out there. You know, the whole world is a haunted maze. And here's this community, you know, not mocking it, but just, I don't know, just drawing the wrong, wrong kind of attention to it. And then there's a shindig and we, there's a, there's a confrontation that happens. And this is where you start to see, okay, there's, there are class differences and people, um, in the Commonwealth don't want to see it. Certainly the Alexandria people, they do see it and they realize they are on various levels of this class system now. So it's going to lead to probably some confrontations, not only like Alexandria versus the Commonwealth, but, but, but among the Alexandria people themselves. Episode 11 is a focus on Eugene that honestly I struggled watching. I fell asleep and then I just went back and skimmed the parts that I missed This is where you find out that Stephanie is not really Stephanie. Um, We find out who is the real Stephanie. Uh, It's just weird that they look alike. Like, I don't know why they did that. Um, I don't know. It was a little weird. But the person who turns out to be Stephanie, it's kind of an interesting choice. There's a mystery with Connie. Um, She's trying to find out some information about, you know, uh, one of... Well, there was a stormtrooper that got demoted to a waiter, and he's the one that caused all the commotion in the previous episode, and then he disappears, and there's a list of names, so we're starting to find out what's going on with that. Um, Twelve is when Stephanie, the real Stephanie, her name is Max, tells her side of the story. She is the sister to Mercer. Okay, so that's going to, you know, cause some problems down the road. This is the episode where the Commonwealth tours the various communities, and I half expected Pamela to kill Maggie, or at least be threatening to Maggie, because every time she goes to a community, they always bring Maggie up, and you can see that Pamela is not happy about that. She's not happy that even though uh, Pamela has more to offer, everybody is sort of like you know, more in line with what Maggie is doing because she's providing with very little, right? It's, there's a lot of themes of like leadership and opportunity and luck. Um, you know, Maggie has sway. She has a lot of sway over these communities. We get to see, see a little bit about Lance in these episodes as well. 13 and 14 is a two-parter with uh, Michael Bean as a, from Terminator and Aliens as a special guest star. So there's, there's this community 
that the Commonwealth wants to go investigate, and they're using Aaron and um, they're using Gabriel to join them, and they want to bring them into the Commonwealth. I was a little worried because I was like, don't tell me they're introducing another community. But really, it turns out that this community is suspected of stealing weapons, so the Commonwealth sends one of their CIA guys, sort of undercover, to find out. Well, he winds up killing everybody, and he's kind of crazy, and then, of course, that means Aaron and Gabriel have to fight back, and Maggie comes, and this we find out this, is, this community is actually where Negan is. He's now married to a woman that is having his child. He runs into Herschel uh, in episode 14, Herschel Jr., who, you know, is now the new Carl because he stowed away on a truck without Maggie knowing, and now he's in the middle of this confrontation. So then he has a confrontation and a scene with Negan, finds out that Negan is a bad man, probably the bad man that killed his father. So Herschel pulls a gun on him, and Negan's like, look, kid, you know, you don't want to do this, blah, blah, blah. But when you're older, come to me and we'll settle this. And I thought that was a very, I've heard that before in some manga or some comic or something like that. Negan is like the Wolverine of the Walking Dead. He's always connected to the kids. He had a connection with Carl. He had a connection with Judas. He had a a connection with Lydia, now with Herschel. And it's like, oh God, come on. Really, I think they just brought Negan back because, you know, they know they're going to do a Negan and Maggie spinoff. And it's like, okay, I guess we got to bring him back into the fray. But he is very helpful in this two-parter to stop the Commonwealth. The other plot in these two episodes involves the governor's son, Sebastian. He has been cut off from his money by his mother. And he sends Daryl and Rosita to this home that apparently has a vault with a lot of money. And he, you know, they do the job. Carol and Mercer have to rescue them. Mercer finds out that Sebastian has been sending a lot of people to do this, but they've been dying. And again, it builds on this uh, notion that Mercer is probably going to eventually side with Alexandria and realize, you know, they really are good people and the people he's working for are not. Um... Turns out Lance is behind this, and, you know, we're coming to some kind of head with all of this. The person that really stole all the weapons was Leah. She's back. I don't know if she has anybody with her, but she's the one who stole all the weapons. She's obviously going to be a wild card in whatever happens in the remaining 10 episodes. So I liked this particular chunk of episodes, even if there were one or two episodes that I didn't like. It obviously was a quicker story, right? You only had a handful of episodes as opposed to the first nine. And, uh, you know, I I hope they ramp up from here because I'm ready for one major storyline with just good surprises, good action, do all the things that Walking Dead really did well in those early seasons to, you know, send us to the finish, finish line. So... I'm sure there's people out there that have already seen it and maybe you're laughing because it's like, oh, you know, don't expect too much. But, you know, we'll see. I've come this far. I'm going to enjoy it regardless. It'll be nice to put it aside and be able to start watching other things. So I think I'm just going to go ahead and watch the remaining 10 episodes before I do another segment unless there's some kind of break in the story. So we shall see. 
New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday for the week of February 22nd, starting off with another DCBS shipment that I received in the middle of February uh, with books from the end of January and the first few weeks of February. Just a few things to point out here. You know, my Tom King corner, uh, I got Human Target 11, Danger Street number 3, uh, just random issues like JSA 2, Saga 61, uh, Alter Ego 180 from Tomorrow's Publishing is a look at Young All-Stars. I, I really liked that series, and I got a previous Alter Ego in the 170s that was all about All-Star Squadron, so this feels like a companion magazine. Um, I'm really looking forward to it to see, you know, there's a lot of interviews, some character stuff, you know, character design stuff, behind the scenes stuff for young all-stars. Um, yeah, I really like that series and I've been going through All-Star Squadron, Infinity Inc., but I stopped somewhere like around issue, somewhere in the 30s for All-Star Squadron and... I guess near the somewhere in the teens for Infinity Inc. So I need to go back to that. They are wordy issues. But, you know, for the 80s, it's all of the Earth 2 stuff and it all works together. And then eventually you want to read things like America versus the Justice Society, uh, the last, what what is it? Um, the last days of the Justice Society, which is a crisis tie-in. And then there's things like Joni Thunder and, uh, as I mentioned, Young All-Stars. So, yeah, uh, you know, one of these days I'll get back to all of that. Uh, And then I picked up uh, a trilogy of books entitled Saga of a Doomed Universe. That's where the music that introed this segment comes from. This is from CEX Publishing by creator Scott Reed. It caught my eye in previews because the variant or alt covers to these issues were all things that I loved in the 80s, such as issue one had a had a homage to Secret Wars 10, Watchmen 3, the border covers that Marvel was doing for their 25th anniversary, uh, also Ohatmu, and Who's Who issue number two, which featured Batman. And then issue two did, uh, let's see, they did covers based on Alpha Flight 12 and Dark Knight Returns number four. That's the one that I got. And then issue three did covers based on Death of Captain Marvel, the graphic novel, and Crisis number seven. So, of course, I got that. This whole book is basically telling a lost tale of Bronze Age comics. And the blurb here, it's 1984. 1984's most shocking comic book revealed at last... The heroes have been murdered, all except for for Roy Brannon, a costume loser who can never become the champion that Earth needs. Now it will be Roy's chance to prove everyone wrong, even if he has to destroy the entire universe to do it. Can Roy step up and become the champion the world needs, or will the Nihilist succeed in his plan to destroy the world? Meanwhile, original series creator Burt Colt hijacks everyone's plans as he uncovers the horrifying reality behind this story. It feels very meta, you know? It's basically a celebration of of comics and and the way comics were written and drawn in the 80s, and yet it's, it's about that story, but also there's some underlying story to it as well, from what I can gather. 
and they are all, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, 60 to 80 pages each. And it originally was on Comixology. You can probably go to CEX Publishing. Maybe there's some digital copies. I got them for the covers, but as I was flipping through, I was like, okay, I'm going to read this. This actually looks kind of fun. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that here uh, in the, the top of this segment. All right, so here are your recommendations for February 22nd, starting with Scout Comics, Banshees 1 of 5 for $4.99 by Jessica Balboni, Ricardo Fasanini, Tim Daniel, and of course, Dave Duanch, who was one of the creators on Jenny Zero. Emily is entering her first year of college and looking to reinvent herself after the loss of her best friend. But when she discovers the terrible history of her dormitory, she channels her guilt into a new obsession, discovering the truth about the lion, a serial killer that stalked her college campus for nearly a decade. But old ghosts can lay dormant for only so long. Always supporting Dave Dwanch. From Dark Horse, we have Blue Book 1 of 5, $4.99 by James Tiny in the Fourth, Klaus Jansen with covers by Michael Avon Oming. This is basically a non-fiction comic book experience depicting true stories of UFO abductions with an eye to capturing the strange essence of these encounters. Tinian is presenting what he calls his true weird stories. Tales of ordinary people encountering the strange and the impossible. Teaming with artist Michael Avon Oming, they retell some of the most popular UF and alien UFO and alien encounter accounts, starting with the infamous Betty and Barney Hill abduction, the widely publicized and first, uh, very first abduction that went on to shape and influence all future encounter stories. From Franographics, we have Underground, the unwanted hardcover by Otto Binder. The unwanted is Otto Binder's response to the 1950s McCarthy era of paranoia and intolerance, couched in metaphorical science fiction terms. A civilization of master men rules the galactic empire and must evaluate citizens of the various planets for inclusion into an imperial congress. Membership means access to technology, prosperity, and protection. We learn the priorities and values of these visitors and why, in, in evaluating this planet, the master men find a world shockingly different from their own. Written in the 50s and never before published, this edition pays homage to Binder's comics career by enlisting the collaborative talents of Angelo Torres, who with Al Williamson and Roy Krenkel illustrated Binder's EC story, Lost in Space. A stunning tribute to Binder's lifelong commitment to comics and prose for $25. From Silver Sprocket, we have Golden Record One Shot, $19.99, by Rosemary Valero O'Connell, a bilingual English-Spanish poetry magazine and autofiction chapbook lusciously written and illustrated by Rosemary Valero O'Connell, an amalgamation of words and images brought together to become more than the sum of their parts, exploring the body as the site and host of all pleasure and pain. And from DC Comics, Dawn of DC is continuing on with Superman number one by Joshua Williamson and Jamal Campbell. And we have Superman returning to Metropolis. Lex is in prison. There's some new mystery with a whole bunch of villains that are out. 
But are they targeting Superman or are they targeting Lex Luthor? And what is Supercore? $4.99. We have Catwoman 52, which has the Dawn of DC banner. This is by Teeny Howard and Sammy Basri. And we have a new, uh, basically a new Catwoman, um, Aiko Hasegawa. Although I think this story has been going on since issue 50 or 51, but they weren't bannered with Dawn of DC. But since this is now part of the Dawn of DC, you know, umbrella, uh, I'm going to want to read it. I'm going to want to read it on the app because I'm trying to read all of the Dawn of DC stuff. And then take a look out for Batman Superman World's Finest number 12 by Mark Wade and Emma Lupacino. This is the issue that finally reveals what exactly went on with the date between Dick Grayson, Robin, and Supergirl. And why did it cause such a mess? And it's been this ongoing uh, through line throughout the issue. So I'm really looking forward to that. $3.99. There you go, your recommendations for February 22nd. Edward and Alphonse Elric, as a result of attempting the forbidden act of resurrecting their mother with alchemy, have paid the price. Edward lost an arm and a leg. Alphonse lost his whole body, his soul now attached to a suit of armor. Together they search for a way to make their bodies complete again and uncover a deadly plot by their country's military rulers. That's the concept of Hiromu Arakawa's Fullmetal Alchemist, one of the best manga ever made. Tim and Patrick are rereading Arakawa's masterwork in search of interesting sound effects, translation errors, goofy humor, and oh yeah, a great story. The podcast is The Law of Equivalent Exchange, a chapter-by-chapter look at the manga Fullmetal Alchemist. New episodes every other Monday, wherever podcasts are found. What are you willing to exchange? The Daily Reads Thursday, heading back into the Heroes Reborn comics from 1996 and 1997. I previously covered just the first issues on the digest for August 14th, 2022. And now I have read up to issue six of all four titles. We're talking about Avengers, Captain America, Fantastic Four, and Iron Man. You know, all of these books spinning out of the onslaught event that had all this 90s energy. We have Captain America and Avengers being done by Rob Liefeld and Fantastic Four, and Iron Man being done out of Wildstorm Studios with Jim Lee, etc. In those first issues, I talked about how it felt like some of the titles felt a little bit like a template for movies. Uh, There was this acceleration of storytelling and character introductions, you know, instead of Fantastic Four, the original series, taking years to introduce new characters and supporting cast members, you know, they're really trying to do it all in just one issue. Um, You know, like in that first Fantastic Four issue, we get Wyatt Wingfoot, and we get Doom, and we get the Fantastic Four, etc., and Mole Man, you know, so it's like this acceleration of storytelling. Um, The other thing I mentioned is how I can see because Bob Harris is EIC of Marvel at this time, um, how that affected what DC did with the New 52. Because Heroes Reborn is kind of like the precursor to the New 52. 
And then the other thing I mentioned is already we're getting clues to certain characters remembering their lives in the 616 universe, that there might be some clue to um, all of this being um, some other world, some other alternate dimension. Is it a product of what Franklin is doing, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I've read these issues before and I've read the stuff that came out of it, so I know those answers, but... It's kind of fun to read them all at once in hindsight to see how all of this is playing out. The whole reason I'm reading these books is because I eventually really want to read Thunderbolts. That's really what the goal was. And I did actually read a few of the introductory stories for Thunderbolts. I'm about ready to read Thunderbolts 1. And somewhere along the way, you know, obviously I'm going to finish all of these titles. I'm also reading Incredible Hulk at this time. Because there are two Hulks within the Marvel Universe. One in the Heroes Reborn Universe, one in the regular 616 Universe. And I'm trying to pay attention to anything else that might be Onslaught related, or Thunderbolts related, or Heroes Reborn related. So what I'm going to do for this segment is just go through some notes for all of the issues for Heroes Reborn up to issue 6, which is where I am currently at. I'm going to go from my least favorite to my quote-unquote favorite uh, and just talk, you know, give a little bit of notes of things that popped out here and there. So, for instance, let's start with Avengers. Probably, quickly, the worst one of the bunch. It is very inconsistent story-wise. It is super inconsistent um, art-wise. It feels very... It's targeted to a very young audience, but I don't think it's, it's going to sound weird to say, I don't think it's as polished as, you know, say even something like Youngblood, you know, I'm okay with it trying to capture a 90s feel, but this feels like the worst of it, right? And there isn't a lot of thought behind sequentials, you know, the some of the passages from panel to panel don't make sense. I don't know if it's the artwork. I don't know if it's the script. Um, There's very little in in terms of characterization. And there are some things in here that I'm like, okay, why are they doing that? Why are they doing this? So this is, it's really just not a good read. So Avengers 2 and 3, issues 2 and 3, features Avengers versus Kang. And he apparently has... A very a relationship that's similar between Thanos and Death, but Kang is having it with Mantis in this, you know, incarnation, but there's really no reason behind it. Um he's eventually defeated by the end, and but that's really it. Like you don't get much else other than two issues of a fight book. Uh some things that are happening in these early issues. Ultron, who is basically an assistant to Hank Pym, Every issue, he evolves. So he becomes Ultron 2, Ultron 3. Eventually, he becomes Ultron 4, and he looks like the evil Ultron that we know, and he has this thing for Janet. That's It's a fun little subplot, but you know, is it really going to go anywhere? I have no idea. Avengers 4 and 5 is about the Avengers versus Hulk, who has come to the island, and he just, you know, he lays out everybody. Just like in the original Avengers comics, Loki is the one that's behind it. Scarlet Witch is apparently the Enchantress's daughter in this, you know, universe. 
we do get an Ant-Man eventually with a costume designed by Ian Churchill. It's not very good. Um, he even says he has deja vu when he uses his micron gas on himself for the first time. Again, another nod to the 616 universe. We also get that with the character of Swordsman. He thinks he recognizes and knows Mantis, and if you know their history in the 616 universe, obviously that makes sense. There are some other little mysteries here and there. We don't, like, why is Hawkeye hiding his face? What's the story behind Hellcat? Um, Does Thor, is his hammer a hammer or a sledgehammer? Because it's way inconsistent how it's drawn. Uh, and all of this this battle between Hulk and Avengers, is it's just to set up the crossover story called Industrial Revolution that happens in all of the issues uh, number sixes, in all the six issues, which I'm going to talk about in a bit here. Let's go to Captain America issues two through five, two through six, actually. Um, surprisingly, even though it's by Rob Liefeld, it's a little more consistent than the Avengers. It's not great, but at least it's consistent in its story and trying to tell this new path for this new Captain America. You know, he wasn't buried in ice. Instead, he was kind of buried in in his memories and he's given this family. They're really a bunch of life model decoys. He becomes Captain America eventually. He goes up against Master Man, the Red Skull, um, we get Sam Wilson along the way. It's really kind of just like a big dumb fight book, uh, with not a lot going on again, but at least, uh, you know, you can follow the story a little better and you can follow the sequentials a little better, even if it's very, very, very surfacey. There are other characters like Sharon Carter makes an appearance, Dum Dum Dugan, Crossbones. Nick Fury is in all of the titles. Uh, It takes a while for him to get into Iron Man, but he eventually shows up there as well. During all of this battle, Sam Wilson gets shot. So Captain America slices his hand open and has Sam drink his super soldier serum blood. And it's green, which I was like, ew, that's that's really gross. (laughs) I don't know if, if Liefeld was trying to say that Captain America had like the serum was made from gamma radiation because gamma radiation is sort of all over the place here. It's It powers the Avengers headquarters. It powered the ship that the Fantastic Four was working on. It obviously created, you know, the Hulk in this universe. Um, we never really get an answer to it. I just thought it was really weird. We get the character of Ricky Barnes as, you know, she eventually is going to be Bucky. Um... But issue five ends with um, these missiles that are targeted to Los Angeles and she's strapped to them. And then we get this comment by Red Skull where he's like, oh, you know, you seem familiar. And I don't know if that's like a play on the 616 universe or is this Ricky Barnes related to Red Skull in a weird way? I don't know. Eventually they win the day. And then we jump to Captain America 6 because the first part is not involved in Industrial Revolution. It's this weird, totally in the middle of the story team up with Captain America and Cable. Cable just shows up because he was searching for his friend Blacksmith and then tripped some kind of temporal thing and he winds up in this universe. 
and he's fighting alongside Captain America and Bucky. Um, they're fighting against Zemo and Modoc and AIM. And it's really just sort of like this narrative story of Cable saying, oh, you know, this Captain America is such a hero. And then he discovers that this man is not another Captain America from some other time, but the one true Captain America. That's a quote from what he's talking about. And then at the end, he says, look, you know, I now realize that these heroes are alive and I'm going to try to find a way to bring them back. So now we have Cable, Doctor Strange, and the 616 Hulk, who have all been either to this alternate universe or realize that the heroes still are alive. It was just such a weird issue because it's all like splash pages and double pa- uh, splash pages and this weird, and like it's like cables on the cover and on the inside, and you're like, what? Just so strange. I mean, I get it. It's Rob Liefeld, right? He's using his character. It just was very weird. Iron Man 2 through 5, uh, you know, these stories I, I actually really liked. I liked the Wills Portacio artwork, and then eventually we get Ryan Benjamin on art. Um, issue 2 is basically just Iron Man versus Hulk. Not a lot of forward movement when it comes to the story. It's a big, dumb fight book, but um, the artwork is pretty great, and I wrote here that I think it was better than Fantastic Four number 2. And there's a great opening splash page of Iron Man by Wills Portacio. I still do like this armor. I really do. Uh, let's see, Iron Man number three, um, we had a cliffhanger at the end of Iron Man two with the Hulk and Iron Man underwater, and then this issue just kind of like skips ahead, and we get to see Wills Portacio's version of Fantastic Four in these pages, we get Whirlwind, we get the creation of Living Laser, who attacks Tony Stark in Iron Man number four, and whirlwind attacks him in iron man number five and that's where we learn that the mandarin is around he might be the leader of hydra it's you know it's 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 good like there's something i really that i do really like about it it's certainly more competent than the avengers book and there are little things that i appreciate such as no one knows that tony is iron man just yet um and when he's in the Iron Man armor, he talks differently. He sort of talks in a little bit of a slang, which was an interesting thing to pick up as I was reading. I talked about how in the first issue of Iron Man, you had this huge supporting cast of characters. You know, you had Pepper Potts and Tony Stark, Bruce Banner, Liz Ross, um, Doc Samson, Jennifer Walters. I mean, it was just like, just a ton of characters and they sort of go away which is a little disappointing because I liked that they were handled nicely um but then by the end it really just becomes about Tony and Pepper and Sitwell and you know what's going on and then at the end of Iron Man 5 he realizes that um the Avengers Island is just is destroyed so he's gonna go check that out leading him into the crossover story And then Fantastic Four issues two through six, probably the best of the bunch, if not for the Jim Lee art, just for kind of like the energy. There's a youthful energy. It's fun to read. It's it's at times surfacey. At other times, it's kind of smart. Um, But it it was engaging, I have to say, you know, like not all of it was. But as I was reading it, I was like, okay, so far I'm in it. You know, the dialogue sometimes can be super cheesy a lot of exposition, 
But then there are other times where I'm like, oh, you know, Jim Lee and company do this really cool thing of especially, let's see, in Fantastic Four issue six, the first part, page three, it's totally an exposition page. There's four panels. Each member of the Fantastic Four is in, you know, one of them is in each panel, but so is one of the supporting members or a villain. And through their dialogue and conversation, you basically get caught up with what's going on. And I liked it. I was like, wow, that's actually really smart. It wasn't so obvious. Um, uh, It was a nice use of all of your characters and the number four, four panels, four Fantastic Four members, four supporting characters. I I like that. I like that a lot, actually. There's some really great splash pages. I don't mind Jim Lee's version of Doctor Doom. I thought he looks great. We get the Super Scroll. He looks great. Black Panther in some of the, in the later issues. He's kind of cool. Some really good Namor shots. A few of them that are inspired by Jack Kirby. So it's again, it's one of those stories where you know Jim Lee and company are condensing so many things about the Fantastic Four in just six issues. Fantastic Four issue two wraps up the Mole Man stuff, and two and three is a battle with Namor. Issue three, the Avengers show up. The artwork can feel a little claustrophobic at times, but, you know, it's still that classic Jim Lee stuff. We eventually meet Alicia Masters. Um, Four, five, and six, we have, uh, we meet Black Panther. Eventually we get Doom, who has um, abducted abducted Silver Surfer, who was part of the anomaly in issue one that gave the Fantastic Four their powers. Reed at one point questions how he and his teammates can acclimate to their new ability so quickly. And he says, almost as though we've always had them. There you go. Again, another clue to 616. Um, As I mentioned, we get the Super Scroll and he's out for revenge because uh, the throne world of the scrolls was consumed by Galactus. And we get to see Jim Lee's version of Galactus. And it you know looks similar to what we know him to be. Um, but I just thought that was great because I was like, oh, you know, the Heroes Reborn universe has a Galactus? That's kind of weird, right? Because I thought there was only like sort of one Galactus per um, iteration. So... Did anybody ever do anything with this, like, rogue Galactus? You know, it's going to be interesting once I get to the end to see if they do anything with that. Also, in issue four, Johnny is buying Fantastic Four toys. And it even says on their toy biz. And I was like, wait a minute, is this a product placement? Because this was right when Marvel was ready to go bankrupt. And I was like, is Jim Lee making a commentary on the very company that owns Marvel at this time? Because that's great. That's great, and it's and it's kind of subversive, so I kind of dig that. So, of course, Doom wants to try to gain the powers of the Silver Surfer, and he doesn't. And this kicks us off into Industrial Revolution, which takes place in all of the issue six uh, for, for all of the titles. Uh, it's a prologue in issue four, issue six of Fantastic Four, where Doom discovers that Avengers headquarters has been destroyed, the Gamma Core is ready to have a meltdown, and the cause of it is the Hulk. 
And Doom learns that Hulk is Bruce Banner. And he starts to think about back in the days when they all were in college and they were called the Atomic Knights. We get this flashback that is very similar to Watchmen and the Minutemen, where you have Doom, Reed, Tony, Banner, Rebel from Iron Man. Uh, Let's see, Hank Pym is there. And so is um, Ben, Ben Grimm is there. And the idea is that these uh, scientists, the, the, these, these atomic knights, were trying to initially come up with like an exosuit, which I think became the Iron Man armor. But then when you think about it, there's something that um, Banner says where he says, the very existence of the gamma bomb will ensure that it will never be deployed. Uh, not when I believe that within each of us is the capacity to wield such unbridled power for the benefit of all mankind. To which Hank replies, if you're all through plotting your industrial revolution, I'm about ready to take this picture. That's where you get the title. But this this is very Ozymandias from Watchmen. It's very Iron Man from the MCU about developing an armor around the world. And when you think about it, they all do. Iron, uh, Tony Stark creates the Prometheus armor. And Doctor Doom is encased in armor. Banner basically has like this organic armor. You can think of like Thing. You can think of uh, Pym creating Ultron. You can think of the Fantastic Four gaining powers. I thought it was a really nice thematic thing. And it kind of gave me hope. Gave me a little bit of hope that Industrial Revolution would actually be something. Then you read parts one and two from Avengers 6 and Iron Man 6 it's basically everybody coming to Avengers headquarters to stop the meltdown of the Gamma Core. And the only way they can do it is if the Hulk takes over and closes some doorway. Everybody finds out that he's Banner. Uh, we don't really... We, we get all these characters meeting each other again, but we don't get what's promised from the Fantastic Four prologue where Doom kind of says, you know, all of this is going to come to a head. It doesn't really. So it's a little disappointing. I wanted, I don't know why I expected more, but um, it is what it is, I guess. We do get the clearest connection yet and an explanation, basically, for the line of books in Avengers number six, when Loki is, uh, you know, kind of harassing Nick Fury And he says, one of the irksome things about this alternate universe, and then he goes on and says something disparaging about Nick Fury, but there he does, he just laid it out. This is an alternate universe. I guess we kind of knew that, but I think we also felt that Marvel would have continued this had this been successful, you know? So, um, yeah, it was interesting that it was spelled out so clearly in issue number six. In Iron Man, which is part two of this storyline, Iron Man number six, when Hulk is closing that door, um, someone says, the psionic readings just popped off the scale. There's something in there with him, something alive. The very next panel, we see this like image of Onslaught. And he says, behold my mighty hand. I was like, wait a minute, I don't remember that. So what is that about? Is he talking about Hulk? Is he talking about himself? Is there something in the Avengers headquarters, which is now at the center of the Earth? Uh, I don't know what happens with Hulk after this. 
Um, Captain America thinks that Avengers are going to disband, but Iron Man says no. So, yeah, again, if we didn't know already that all this was going to be temporary, we certainly do now. And then the epilogue in Captain America 6 is really just three pages of the Trinity, Thor, Iron Man, and Captain America, saying to Fury that the Avengers are no longer under uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. They're going to be under Stark, and they are going to become the Avengers without their help. And that's really the end of this story arc. One thing that was interesting about this little epilogue is Thor says to Fury, we would have words with thee. And that's years before Busiek said the same thing with Thor to Ultron in his Avengers run with Perez. You know, I was like, wait a minute, is this something Thor always says? Or did every... Everybody who thinks that's such a great moment with Ultron in that later Avengers Busiek Perez run was actually, the words were actually said here. Very strange. Um, but yeah, that's it. That was the Industrial Revolution. It was a little bit of a, of a letdown. Uh, all in all, though, you know, I, I'm not going to disparage these books any more than they are already disparaged um, because I am finding some things in it. Uh, little fun connections and, uh, you know, the bad ones are the bad ones and the good ones are the semi-good ones. Now I have issues 7 through 13 left and apparently at this time Marvel was tired of the delays that Liefeld had and felt that his books weren't selling. So they ended his contract early and Avengers and Captain America will now be done by Wildstorm here on out and I read somewhere that Jim Lee said look Marvel wanted to keep this line going but the only way they would commit to it is if Jim Lee committed to drawing one of the titles they would have extended it past you know the first year and Jim Lee was like no I can't do that and I guess somewhere along the way uh you know they were like all right we're gonna bring back all of these characters and fold them back into the Marvel Universe, which has to be somewhere soon, right? I mean, the Heroes Return launch was pretty big, and we only have six, uh, seven more issues of this. So when do they start get when do they start to get the ball rolling for that creative team? I'll have to look at that in some of the ads or in Wizard magazine. You know, when when did we realize that this was eventually going to end? So all right, there you go. That is my dip back into Heroes Reborn. And whenever I finish, I will get back to it. This Friday segment for this week, I'm re-recording and recording well after Friday, February 24th. The original segment and this one is about the loss of Darren Noel, known as Rainbow Cloak on the old CGS forums. He was the co-host of the long-running Legion of Substitute Podcasters podcast and someone 
that has been part of the larger comics community, podcasting community, and the convention community as well, uh, as well as other circles. So Darren passed away on February 21st. The original segment I recorded shortly after that for this digest was was fine, uh, a little rambly. Um, when I when it came time to put this whole digest together, I just felt I should record something that was in the now, in the present, uh, especially because a little time has passed and other people have celebrated his friendship and I really wanted all of that information out there. So uh, I thought, you know, instead of just my thoughts, uh, and they weren't long, um, and I didn't have these other podcasts to talk about, instead of that, um, I thought, okay, let's let's just make this a little bit broader so you can listen to a number of people who, who knew Darren far more than I did and who spent time with Darren, and I think you'll appreciate that. For my thoughts and for a larger tribute to who Darren was to me, to CGS, to the CGS community, go listen to Comic Geek Speak episode 1890, entitled We Love You, Darren. Uh, that's, a, that's a much better tribute because I get to talk with Brian and Shane and we all reminisce and we tell funny stories and in an interesting way we kind of come together to examine our own friendship because of Darren. So that that's a I really liked our conversation on that episode. Legion of Substitute Podcasters episode 750 uh, has all of Darren's co-hosts talking about Darren, uh, among other things. Um, Paul, Paul French, who also was part of the larger CGS community. Uh, Paul and Darren were the original hosts of that podcast. Um, and Paul's tribute is especially touching because, again, he has spent, you know, hours and hours and hours with Darren, and they have shared family experiences and, and connected over the years. So it was it was really heart, heart, um, heartfelt. Um, the 2023 Dragon Con Report, episode number two, Mike Faber, Mike Gordon, and other people. Uh, hosts pay tribute to Darren because Darren was such a, you know, a big part of Dragon Con and that's where he would probably meet a lot of his friends every year. Um, so go watch that. That's a video podcast. I'll put a link to that and to all of these uh, on on the sh- in the show notes. And then the same hosts, Mike Faber and Mike Gordon, they do the Earth Station One podcast. They're going to hold a tribute on Facebook or YouTube on Monday night, March 13th at 9 p.m. So you can watch the recording. They're going to do a tribute. And they ask that if you want to share memories of Darren, you can record an audio clip, a video clip. You can write in, send it to feedback at earthstation1.com. And they will use it during the broadcast. And then Culture Trapping uh, episode 48 with Sean Pryor and uh, Daryl Taylor, Julian Lytle, Gil Cologne. They have a short tribute in the in the beginning as well um, because they, uh, again, they know Darren through the CGS forums, through meeting him at super shows or maybe at other conventions. 
So, um, and there might be others that I've just missed that I haven't come across just yet. On that CGS episode, I did put a call out that if you knew Darren and you wanted to uh, talk about him in any way, you can send a, an audio clip, an email, uh, send it to the CGS email, comicgeekspeak at gmail.com. You can send it to me, peter at thedailyreels.com, and we'll include it in a later CGS episode. You know, I saw a lot of longtime forum members popping up. Uh, to say a tribute, you know, either on Facebook or Twitter. So it would be great to hear your stories and your memories because you interacted with him on the forum or maybe at conventions. Um, I just think it would be, you know, great to keep the audio tributes going to to keep Darren in our collective thoughts. Um, for those people that spent so much time with Darren over the years, family, friends that became family, this is a huge loss and it's a huge loss of his energy and his spirit and his friendship. And we will, uh, we will be less for it. Um, but you know, we have hours and hours and hours of Darren on the Legion of Substitute podcasters. So there is a way to keep all of that memory going and you can listen to his thoughts and his humor and his thoughts about comics and life. Um, so I think that's, um, I do enjoy that aspect of podcasting. So Darren used to cosplay as uh, Wonder Woman or his version of Wonder Woman. I'm not sure if he called it Wonder Boy or Wonder Man or anything like that. Um, but after I sign up, uh, sign off on this episode, I'm going to play the Wonder Woman 70s theme uh, as a tribute. But really because, you know, those lyrics are very 70s and they're very kitschy. But at the heart of it, I think they work. I think they work for Darren. Uh, I think they work for the things that he believed in. So thank you for listening to this digest. Thank you for listening to anything that I produce. And, and thank you for listening to any podcaster and being part of their community um, because uh, they really do appreciate your support. And it, it for for a lot of people, it it's the closest thing they might have to friendships, you know? So uh, always email people, always reach out, tell them you're listening. They will appreciate it. All right, you can email me, peter at thedailyreels.com. You know, you know the drill. My website, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 605 for Saturday, February 25th, 2023. Talk to you soon. Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman. All the world is waiting for you and the power you possess. In your satin tights, fighting for your rights and the old red, white, and blue. A hawk and dove, stop a war with love, make a liar tell it true. Wonder Woman, get us out from under Wonder Woman.